You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. I have a question for you. What will your legacy be? Will you be remembered for your commitment to liberty? Or will you waver at the sight of adversity? Will you hold the line and stand for truth no matter how popular it may be? Or will you bend to peer pressure? Will you let your faults and failures define your story? Or will you overcome your challenges and push forward in pursuit of something greater? Will you stand firm and be a champion of freedom? Or will you let it be said that you did nothing? Throughout our history, ordinary people have risen to the occasion to do extraordinary things in the name of liberty. These people were not perfect, far from it. Yet in spite of their faults and failures, they never looked back. No matter how many times they fell, they continued to get back up. This is their legacy. Because of their commitment, our world is more free. Each and every one of us has the power to follow in their footsteps. It's up to us to pick up that torch. No signer of the Declaration of Independence in 1776 was as well known or carried as much of a reputation as much as Benjamin Franklin did. While many saw their claim to fame during that summer, Franklin was already a well-known celebrity for years prior, for good reason, too. Many founding fathers were incredibly young in 1776. Thomas Jefferson, for instance, was only 33 at the time and was far from the youngest. Dr. Franklin, however, had been crafting society and inventing America before many of them were even born. As a scientist, an inventor, a philosopher, a media mogul, a diplomat, a politician, and more, Benjamin Franklin gained his reputation as the first American well before the signing of the Declaration of Independence. In fact, many of the institutions we take for granted today came from his ever-curious mind. Many technologies that are now commonplace started as an idea in Franklin's head. Today, he is often remembered for a handful of things. He flew a kite, he signed the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, he really liked women, and he was witty. Most of this is true. But it barely scratches the surface of how influential Dr. Franklin was to the concept of the American society. More than just helping craft a Republican government, Franklin's greatest contribution was arguably his influence over the American identity. More than almost anyone else, he helped define just what it meant to be an American, an identity shaped around tolerance, justice, and liberal ideas. He made America a curious nation, a people who wouldn't just accept the official narrative. To Franklin, engagement in your local communities builds a better, stronger, and more virtuous nation. 
It was a grassroots approach from the bottom up. The idea that true change happens from the individual outwardly. Not everything he introduced to American society was necessarily his invention, but the way he wove together so many cultural and institutional aspects to create a singular American identity was uniquely Franklin. Perhaps only Thomas Jefferson had as big of an impact, and even then, Franklin had a much greater impact on individual civic engagement in the local community. To Ben, perhaps the best way to maintain liberty is to engage the common man in their community as much as possible. We continue to feel his influence to this day, every day. Benjamin Franklin's unique life began on January 6, 1705. However, when the calendar switched from the old-style Julian calendar to the new-style Gregorian calendar in 1752, his birthday technically moved to January 17th. While many in his generation adjusted to the change, Ben would admit to hold an attachment to his original birth date. He would later write to his wife in 1773, quote, I still feel some regard for the 6th of January as my old normal birthday. Ben experienced a true rags-to-riches journey throughout his life. He was born in a small house in Boston, which was then part of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. He was the youngest son among his siblings. His father, Josiah Franklin, had 17 children between two wives. Josiah came from England to Massachusetts in 1682. His mother, Abia Franklin, was the daughter of one of the very first settlers of New England. Even before his birth, Franklin had deep ties to the earliest foundations of America from both his parents. From his earliest days, Ben showed a deep love for the written word. He held a passion for reading, and his tremendous talent as a writer began to blossom as early as eight and nine years old. The stories he read about captured his imagination and started to bestow wisdom upon him beyond his years. He would consume as many books as possible, saving up as much as he could, as quickly as he could, so that he could purchase more. Although he didn't fully realize it at the time, Benjamin Franklin was beginning to understand how the written word can be a powerful tool if utilized properly to liberate the mind of man. However, his father had other ideas about young Ben's future. He sought to set him up for a career in the clergy, which possessed considerable power in Puritan Massachusetts. To his father's dismay, Ben was incredibly disinterested in that lifestyle. Benjamin Franklin's faith, or lack thereof, is something that is thoroughly discussed and debated to this day. It isn't accurate to say that he didn't believe in God. He did dabble in deism for a time, the belief that God is this great clockmaker who created the universe and then left it alone. But he struggled to justify his thinking with his Puritan sense of morality and ethics that he maintained throughout his life. His religious beliefs would often ebb and flow, but most accurately, he believed in the Christian God, yet struggled to have faith in the divinity of Christ. It shouldn't be surprising that Ben struggled with faith from early on, being born just 13 years after the Salem witch trials in the same Massachusetts Bay colony that he grew up in. 
Puritanism still bore a heavy influence on society at the time. This ugly blend of church and state was one of the more extreme examples of what could happen if they are not separated. One could and would find ways to corrupt the other. As he went through his life, Ben would come to realize that it wasn't religion he took issue with, but control. Later friends, such as the sensational pastor George Whitfield, would go on to show how faith can be a positive influence in society without exercising control control over people. Yet, if there was one Puritan value that stuck with him throughout his life, it was a strong work ethic. He was an apprentice in his father's candle and soap crafting shop. If he didn't go into the clergy, he had hoped that Ben would maintain the family business. Yet, once again, Ben's independence shined through. He had no desire to carry his father's torch, and instead sought to become a sailor. Josiah Franklin wasn't about to let that happen, and instead sent him to Boston to become an apprentice under his older brother, James, at a printing press. Ironically, this meant that we have his father to thank for his later life as a media mogul. At only 12 years old, Benjamin Franklin was sent to Boston to work under his brother, but it wasn't under the best of terms. On one hand, young Ben developed the skills that would make him world-renowned during his apprenticeship under his brother. However, Ben was an indentured servant to James during this time, and his brother would often make Ben miserable while working. He would dish out beatings if he ever got into trouble or didn't listen. When Ben was only 15, James founded the second newspaper in America, and the first to truly push the limits of a free press, the New England Current. What would seem like a great opportunity to engage Ben in the newspaper world wasn't allowed to happen by James, however. He denied Ben the ability to write for the paper, something he loved and desperately wanted to do. No matter, Benjamin Franklin's work ethic and determination wouldn't allow him to give up that easily. He proceeded to write a letter to the paper against his brother's wishes. But instead of signing it himself, he took up the pen name of a middle-aged widow called Silence Duguid. Without knowing it was his brother's letter, James reviewed his letter and was overjoyed by it. It was comical, irreverent, and surprisingly wise and witty. It challenged authority in all the ways James was looking for. He shared it around the shop, unaware that the true author that earned such high praise was his own brother, sitting back in silent satisfaction. Of course, he ran it, and Ben kept up the charade as long as James kept publishing them. The fact that James couldn't tell the letters were written by a 15-year-old boy with little formal education is a testament to itself to Ben's incredible ability with a pen. It was during this time, writing the Silence Do Good letters, that Ben acquired yet another priceless lesson about pseudonyms. When an author is disassociated from the message, it can at times be easier for that message to spread further, especially when the content could be dangerous to speak or publish. Pseudonyms can offer a certain layer of protection. Nobody may have had any interest in what 15-year-old Benjamin Franklin had to say, but a middle-aged widow of a minister, Silence Duguid, brought wisdom, experience, and authority to her letters. Not even James could deny this. This was a lesson that Ben kept throughout his life, and would use time and again for years to come. In the summer of 1722, 
James Franklin's controversial paper landed him in some trouble with the authorities. He ran a short piece in his paper that the colonial government took some offense to. It essentially accused the government of not taking piracy seriously, certainly not his most controversial piece published. No matter, he was held in jail for as long as the legislature remained in session, or about a couple of weeks. As James awaited his freedom, Ben took the reins of the current. In doing so, he was able to continue to publish the Silence Do Good letters during his brother's brief imprisonment. Once he was released, James took back control of his shop. However, Ben's brief stint here in charge of the paper, no matter how short it was, gave him a true taste of the life he would eventually pursue. James began to suspect that Silence Do Good was a pseudonym for someone, but he suspected it to be someone much older than Ben. Eventually, though, Ben did confess to his brother and colleagues to being the author of the letters. His friends and colleagues were mightily impressed by Ben's wit and ability to write so convincingly. James, however, was less than pleased. The Do Good letters stopped, and he warned his brother of becoming too vain. Perhaps vanity was indeed Ben's sin, but envy was certainly James's. His brother's incredible skill irritated him greatly, and he would often treat Ben based on this envy. Still, it wasn't long before James found himself in trouble with the law yet again. America was still a long way from experiencing a true sense of freedom of speech or press, so a paper as controversial as James's found it easy to ruffle the wrong feathers from time to time. This time, the consequences were much more serious. When he once again offended local officials after allegedly mocking religion, he was barred from permission to, quote, print or publish the New England Current or any other pamphlet or paper in the like nature, except it first be supervised by the secretary of this province. James Franklin was permanently censored, but he wasn't the only Franklin in the shop. Ben officially took over the business when he was merely 17 years old and managed to obtain a fair amount of success. As Ben truly came into his own, he became increasingly restless with his brother looming over his head. He was still indentured to James, regardless of who ran the paper. However, James's legal situation put him in a tight spot. Although Ben was officially running the paper, James still pulled the strings. Should Ben flee and James try to enforce his contract with him, he would have revealed that he never truly let go of control of the paper. He would likely be in much greater trouble than Ben would be if that were the case. So that is exactly what Ben did. With still four years left on his contract, Benjamin Franklin ran away from James Franklin in September of 1723. He would travel to New York and eventually to Philadelphia, the city he would finally call his home. It would turn out to be a wise gamble for Franklin. James didn't pursue him and posted an ad in the Courant stating, James Franklin, printer in Queen Street, once a likely lad for an apprentice. He tried to keep up his paper in Boston after Ben left him, but found the Puritan culture that still dominated Massachusetts to be too overbearing for the kind of paper that he wanted to run. The New England Courant published its final issue in 1726. James then fled to Rhode Island, a much more tolerant colony, where he could publish without the looming threat of censorship. As Ben arrived in Philadelphia, he worked for several printing presses, trying to establish his claim in the newspaper industry. None of them he found terribly fulfilling, however, and he went to London to obtain the equipment and additional skills necessary to begin his own paper. 
he returned to Philadelphia in 1726. And it was at this time that Ben started to create the American identity that we know so well today. One of the major appeals to the newspaper industry was the ability to keep the common man informed and educated. He was greatly concerned with engaging the public in civic and community engagement, and he sought to foster a more moral population in Philadelphia. This was the perfect place to do it, too. Pennsylvania was already settled by people who sought a greater level of religious tolerance than what was available in other colonies like Massachusetts. Additionally, Philadelphia was much smaller than Boston and was much more of an ideal place for Ben to bring his vision for a local community to life. Before getting back to the newspaper industry, Ben wanted to cultivate a community of people who were interested in the same values that he was, principles of self-improvement, hard work, and integrity. After spending some time in London, he was inspired by English coffee houses, where community members would come together and discuss and debate ideas, philosophy, politics, and more. With this in mind, he started a new club in Philadelphia in 1727, when he was just 21. The Junto, aka the Leather Apron Club, brought in members that were, quote, like-minded, aspiring artisans and tradesmen who hoped to improve themselves while they improved their community. One where the solutions to a community problem could be found within the community, not some faraway authority. Not too far into the future, societies and clubs like the Junto would start popping up all over America, but especially in Philadelphia, where Franklin kicked things off. They became invaluable, not just in crafting a more virtuous society, but also in cultivating the very ideas that would eventually lead to independence in 1776. Not long after he established his first club in Philadelphia, he got back to business. In 1728, he and his business partner, Hugh Meredith, established a printing house. A year later, they bought the Universal Instructor in All Arts and Sciences, and Philadelphia Gazette, from Samuel Keimer. Upon purchase, they shortened it to its more well-known name, the Philadelphia Gazette. The paper was not the only one in Philadelphia, nor was it the first, but under Franklin's unique vision and talent, it soon became the most successful. His time with his brother at the New England Current, especially when James faced legal trouble, taught him how to operate a printing shop. His silence do-good letters taught him how to capture the imagination of the reader, not to mention the value of pseudonyms. Now, he took all of that learned experience and applied it to his own paper, and Philadelphia loved it. Owning and operating his own paper also allowed him an excuse to leak certain ideas or theories of his to the public so it could influence the culture. If he was unsure how the public would react, or thought it might be too controversial, he was quick to pick up another pseudonym. Franklin's media empire was just getting started. Yet no matter how many accomplishments he made, he would often continue to sign his letters humbly with B. Franklin, printer. As his newspaper continued to achieve success, he would also tend to the fostering of the Junto. By this point, Ben was aware of his mission in life, and that was to lay the foundation for the institutions we enjoy to this day. He wanted society to be well-read, curious, and willing to have difficult conversations. Liberty 
can also persist so long as people of integrity can speak freely about ideas with equal access to information. The first two parts, integrity and free discussion, were difficult at times, but not unmanageable. Equal access to information was something else entirely in the 18th century. There was no internet back then, and knowledge was something only the privileged could obtain, making it easier to oppress the masses. Society was improving in this regard since the invention of the printing press, but it was nowhere near where it needed to be. Newspapers were one thing, but books weren't exactly cheap nor accessible. Not to mention, they weren't always a priority for many colonists when they had farms, families, and businesses to tend to. Through Junto, Ben hoped to create a library where members brought together their own books through a sort of knowledge-sharing system. This didn't come to fruition, but it did give way to an even better idea. Ben eventually came up with the idea of a subscription library, a place where you pay a membership fee, and in turn you'd have an enormous access to books, maps, scientific tools, and so much more. The fees would in turn be used to purchase more books and accessories, and provide the public a pool of knowledge that had previously never been accessible. It's not hard to imagine how even non-members would greatly benefit from such a place. As the general public became more educated through his private library system, it would bring about conversations and discussions that many people had never even considered before. Members or not, the entire community would benefit from such an organization. Thus, in 1731, Benjamin Franklin launched the Library Company of Philadelphia. This was not the first organization ever created with such a model. A few had popped up in Europe well before Franklin's launch of his own. Yet, this was the first time an idea had come to this side of the Atlantic. This is an understated watershed moment for the American colonies. Benjamin Franklin had democratized and decentralized the access to knowledge. It didn't take a college admission to access an education, just an annual fee to the library company of Philadelphia. If everyone had access to the same level of education, then such a populace would be much more difficult to oppress. Likewise, they would also be much more capable of self-governance. Now that the access to information was expanding, the people's liberties were becoming more secure. The library company in Philadelphia is still in operation, to this day. Over the next three decades, Benjamin Franklin's fame went from locally popular to internationally famous. His printing services brought him a considerable amount of money once he published Poor Richard's Almanac. Once again using a pseudonym, Ben took the pen name Richard Saunders and published his first almanac in 1733. It contained various facts and information, including weather predictions, poems, and witty phrases that would soon become synonymous with Franklin himself. It became a runaway bestseller, as it circulated around 10,000 copies a year for 25 years. That's an impressive feat, even by today's standard. In 18th century America, it gave him a level of success many probably didn't even think was possible from publishing. Once again, Ben was setting a standard for what it meant to be an American. In 1748, the success from the Gazette and Poor Richards meant that he could finally retire from the newspaper business early. 
retire, but not detach, and focus on other interests. Of course, he used his newfound free time to build his societies and cultivate a better community. Additionally, he devoted ample time to another major passion of his, science and innovation. Of course, his most significant or famous contribution to this field was his research on electricity. Obviously, Franklin did not invent electricity, as it is commonly misstated. He did, however, discover much about its properties, especially in relation to lightning. He discovered that electricity was a single fluid property with a positive and negative charges. In his research and experimentation, he coined many items and phrases associated with it, such as a battery, conductor, positive and negative, and so much more. The properties of lightning were still very much a mystery at that point. Although it was theorized that it had something to do with electricity, no one could say for sure. Franklin's famous kite experiment in 1752 demonstrated that lightning was, in fact, an electrical discharge. Franklin's inventions brought him a considerable amount of fame as well. His contributions included the bifocals, the lightning rod, the odometer, and the Franklin stove. These and more of his inventions are still used to this day. Franklin's scientific experiments and inventions made him world-renowned and well-respected. Yet the next phase of his life would make him known not just throughout the world, but throughout history. Ben had a rather quick rise to political notoriety. He was elected as a city councilman in 1748, by 1751, he was elected to the Pennsylvania Assembly. By 1757, he was selected as a diplomat to London, where he would spend the next few decades off and on, advocating on behalf of Pennsylvania, and eventually America. During his time in London, he played a significant role in the infamous Stamp Act. After failing to prevent its passage, Benjamin Franklin testified to Parliament how the act was fueling anti-British sentiment and advocated for its repeal, which eventually occurred in 1766. Franklin's advocacy for the repeal of the Stamp Act boosted his popularity across the colonies. He was known as a proponent for American interests against British oppression. This would continue into the 1770s as tensions between the British and the colonists reach a breaking point. Between the Boston Massacre and the Tea Party, conflict was becoming increasingly inevitable. Eventually, in April of 1775, tensions broke, and the American Revolution had begun. Ben was already on his way back to Philadelphia from London. When he arrived in May of that year, each colony sent delegates to the Second Continental Congress, and for Pennsylvania, Benjamin Franklin was a no-brainer. Upon arrival, he started to make bonds with some of the most influential Americans to ever exist. Yet, unlike most delegates who were just getting their career started at the Congress, Franklin had established himself well before most of them were even born. This allowed him to carry a certain amount of respect and authority into the convention and tip the cause of independence into favorable waters. Still, because of Franklin's experience as a diplomat and a politician, he was very careful not to ruffle feathers or give offense to anyone on the sidelines, something that John Adams, his colleague from Massachusetts, had no problem doing. In a sense, Franklin was the good cop to Adams' bad cop, Neither took the wrong approach necessarily, just 
different. Due to his age and slowly deteriorating health, he was not able to play a tremendously active role in support for independence, but he played an important one nonetheless. Perhaps most significantly, in the summer of 1776, he was selected to be on the Committee of Five to draft the Declaration of Independence. He joined Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, Roger Sherman, and Robert Livingston to help create the document and review it before presenting it to Congress. He and Jefferson were especially able to broker a bond around this time. Franklin was about the age Jefferson's father would have been if he were still alive at the time. Additionally, Thomas Jefferson perhaps shared Franklin's love of science and innovation more than any other founder. After Jefferson presented his first draft to the committee, Franklin made some key edits that would go on to appear in the final draft. He took a hold of Jefferson's draft and found himself drawn to one phrase in particular. In it, Jefferson originally wrote, We hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable. Something about that didn't quite sound right to Ben. Jefferson's words may have been true, but to Ben, they still didn't get to the core of why they were sacred and undeniable. He scratched out that line and wrote the now timeless words, We hold these truths to be self-evident. Jefferson, like Franklin, was a child of the Enlightenment, and Ben knew Thomas would see the value in the amendment. The rest, as they say, is history. Ben also played a crucial role in the vote for independence behind the scenes. As June turned into July, they still didn't have enough votes to pass the resolution. His own Pennsylvania was one of the last remaining states serving as a roadblock to independence. It was the 11th hour, and Franklin had to quickly negotiate with the final dissenting voices to flip Philadelphia. The delegates from that colony had two firm yes votes, Franklin and James Wilson. Four firm no votes, John Dickinson, Robert Morris, Charles Humphrey, and Thomas Willings. And one undecided, John Morton. Dickinson was the most vocal, so if he could at least get him to abstain, Philadelphia still had a shot. In the end, that's exactly what happened. Dickinson and Morris didn't vote, and Morton was persuaded to go along with the yeas. What was a 4-2 in favor of nay was now a 3-2 in favor of yay. Because of Franklin's careful negotiations, the last major roadblock to independence was now solidly in favor of the resolution. On July 2nd, they approved the motion, and on July 4th, Congress adopted the Declaration of Independence. Once John Hancock gave his signature, it is reported that Franklin then told him that, yes, we must indeed all hang together, or most assuredly, we will all hang separately. As summer turned into fall, Ben's arguably most important role was underway. He was tasked to a diplomatic mission to France to secure their support, both financially and militarily. This is where his celebrity status came in handy. Perhaps nowhere was Ben Franklin more popular outside of America than in France, and he leaned into that fame as much as he could. This is also where his reputation as a ladies' man came in handy. These rumors were truly exaggerated to a great degree, 
There was no evidence of Franklin being anything more than a flirt while his wife, Deborah, was still alive. But there was no denying that he loved the company and attention of women. In order to help secure French support, he turned up his flirtation nature as high as it could be. His wife died in 1774 after 44 years of marriage, which also likely fueled his yearning desire to have the attention of a woman. His plan seemed to have worked, much to the chagrin of John Adams, who joined him in France months later after Franklin already secured an alliance. The more buttoned-up founder from Massachusetts struggled to assimilate to French culture in the same way Franklin had. Benjamin Franklin remained in France throughout the War for Independence. He helped to facilitate the 1783 Treaty of Paris to broker peace between America and Great Britain, and served as the first American ambassador to France. In 1785, he yearned to return to his home in Philadelphia. He was becoming an elderly man and wished to return to his home country. Fortunately, Thomas Jefferson proved to be the perfect man to succeed him. As Franklin returned, however, his service to his country was not yet finished. He went to the Constitutional Convention, where the new governing document was being heavily debated. Franklin voiced his support for it and was sure to sign it once it passed. In 1789, he was able to experience George Washington being inaugurated as the first president of the United States, the very country that he had been inventing for almost a century. This must have given him a true sense of fulfillment, as the very next year, April 1790, at 84 years old, Benjamin Franklin passed away. The first American was finally buried at Christ Church Burial Ground in Philadelphia the city that he had loved. Ask 10 different people who Benjamin Franklin was, they are likely to give you 10 separate answers, all of which would likely be correct. Founding father, statesman, diplomat, scientist, printer, philosopher, he did it all, and then some. His contributions to the world are not a short list. However, arguably his most important contribution is one that is simultaneously overlooked. We've seen how much time and effort he spent creating a more virtuous and engaged society, one that is acutely attuned into the activities of their own community. Other founding fathers spoke about this in theory, but no founder actually practiced this idea of localism better than Franklin. Today, we've gotten away from this idea to some degree, some people are active in their communities, to be sure, but when we face problems, our first instinct is to lobby the federal government for help and ask them why they haven't done enough. This would almost certainly dishearten Benjamin Franklin. Not only does this strengthen the federal government at the expense of individual liberties, it weakens the bonds, it weakens the bonds that community members have with one another. 
Still, he believed and supported the U.S. Constitution to strengthen the federal government's authority. Yet he never lost sight that true political power begins at home and works its way outward. He envisioned the American system as one that is locally focused, where liberty can be most protected, yet can bond together as a nation against a common threat, such as the outbreak of war. Like many of Ben's other ideas, he was not the first to come up with such a concept. However, he is perhaps the individual who can be thanked the most for blending it into the American identity. From 1756 to 1763, the French and Indian War, more broadly referred to as the Global Seven Years' War, ravaged the American frontier. As the French expanded across North America into the Ohio River Valley, Great Britain was put on high alert. French settlers from Canada often seeped into British territory and caused disputes across many settlements. Tensions finally broke over this border and territorial dispute as the British officially declared war on the French in 1756. Yet it was the American colonists who would have to bear most of the cost. At first, this didn't seem like much of a challenge. Colonists easily outnumbered the French 20 to 1. On paper, it seemed like a clear victory would occur for the British. However, the French were aware of their shortcomings and elicited the help of local Indian tribes. This greatly evened out the odds, and a mad dash to gain Indian support occurred. Another factor working against the British is that the colonies were disorganized. They often chased competing interests between each other. This disunity, coupled with Indian support, gave the French a great advantage that they otherwise would not have had. In 1754, before the war was even officially declared two years later. These were the two issues that colonial leaders knew they needed to quickly address, unity and Indian support. They decided to hold a Congress in Albany, New York to discuss these very issues. Seven colonies sent their delegates and Pennsylvania sent Benjamin Franklin as one of theirs. The primary goal was to strengthen Indian relations. The leaders of the Iroquois Confederacy met with them to negotiate an alliance. Unlike other Indian nations, the Iroquois Confederacy had a good trading relationship with the British already and were more likely to cooperate with them against the French. Yet, Benjamin Franklin saw something more valuable that they could take from the Iroquois, more than cooperation, inspiration. A decade earlier, Colonial representatives met with the Iroquois in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, to negotiate a treaty which would better define boundaries between the two. Settlers kept encroaching on Indian territory, and the colonial government of Pennsylvania proved unable to prevent it. In the end, the Iroquois agreed to cede land to Pennsylvania in return for just compensation. Benjamin Franklin had the meeting minutes printed in the Gazette, but something other than the land session piqued his interest. An Iroquois representative named Canasatego was one of the primary speakers during this conference. He was known as a great peacemaker, but a word of advice near the end of the conference is what sparked Benjamin Franklin's interest. He told the colonial representatives in attendance that, quote, we heartily recommend union and good agreement between you, our brethren. Never disagree, but preserve a strict friendship for one another, and thereby you as well as we will be the stronger. 
Our wise forefathers established union and amity between the five nations. This has made us formidable. This has given us great weight and authority with our neighboring nations. We are a powerful confederacy, and by your observing the same methods our wise forefathers have taken, you will acquire fresh strength and power. Therefore, whatever befalls you, never fall out with one another. It is believed that Nasatego used a metaphor of arrows at the meeting, demonstrating that one arrow can easily be broken, but a bundle cannot. Not centralized, but unified. This fascinated Benjamin Franklin as much as it troubled him. How was it that these supposedly uncivilized Indians could live under a system that gave them so much strength, yet otherwise left them to their own devices? Each nation within the Confederacy pursued their own interests. But when it was time to unite around a common cause or threat, they were a powerful, united front. Why is it that they were so capable of doing this? Yet the supposedly civilized colonies in America failed at it spectacularly. He spent much time studying the methods of the Iroquois in the years that followed. The system that Franklin was so enamored by would serve as a template for the later concept of American federalism. Before he arrived in Albany, he was greatly concerned by the prospects of the coming conflict. By 1754, he had already entered a semi-retirement from the Philadelphia Gazette, leaving the day-to-day -day publishing work to his partner, David Hall. But he was still plenty involved with it, as he wanted to be. In the spring before he left, he wrote an impassioned article about the grim outlook of potential war with France and the urgency to unify. Coupled with this article came the first widespread political cartoon ever made. It was a snake cut into eight pieces that represented the colonies with the words join or die underneath. It isn't confirmed that Franklin himself drew the cartoon, but it's entirely likely that he at least had a hand in it, and he is often attributed to its creation to this day. By the time he arrived in Albany to address the French threat, he was convinced that this system was where the answer lied. He approached the Congress with a plan he devised with the Massachusetts governor, Thomas Hutchinson. It detailed the union of the colonies under a general government for the purpose of addressing common issues, such as Indian treaties or war. Each colony would otherwise retain their own authority as independent colonies of Great Britain. Those present at the Congress thought it would be a good idea, and they approved the majority of the plan. However, not a single colony managed to ratify this plan. Although this upset Ben, it wouldn't be the last time such a concept would be influential in the formative years of the Republic. Despite not adopting the plan, the British did prevail over the French, but at great financial cost, a cost that they expected the colonies to pay, after already paying with so many of their lives during the war. There was already anti-British sentiment running throughout the colonies. But once they started to tax them in order to pay off the war debts, it reached a new high. Protests erupted and acts of rebellion were common 
In the 15 years after the French and Indian War ended, Benjamin Franklin's Join or Die cartoon started to appear all over the colonies again. Not urging unity against the French, but rather, ironically enough, against the British. Now the cause they were uniting around was liberty and independence, something that was capable of rallying a much stronger base than going to fight yet another one of the Crown's wars. In Boston specifically, the Sons of Liberty would parade around with this cartoon to rally patriots to their cause. Eventually, they started making their own iterations of the cut-up snake, with phrases like unite or die underneath it. The outbreak of the Revolution also allowed Ben's Albany plan to gain a second wind. As the colonies broke off from Great Britain, they were in need of a new governing body. The Albany plan served as a sort of template as they were creating and adopting the Articles of Confederation. Still, the Articles were not without their own issues. As a convention met a decade after independence to craft a stronger federal constitution, the ideas of federalism as brought forth by Benjamin Franklin and inspired by the Iroquois Confederacy remained at the heart of that debate. Despite the new constitution being adopted, the separation of powers and priority of localism remained a point of contention. In 1791, a compromise was broken with the adoption of the Tenth Amendment, asserting the authority of the states. Like many other ideas of Benjamin Franklin, he did not invent the notion of federalism or localism. The ingredients were always there, and many other advocates in the founding generation voiced their strong support for it. However, the way Franklin blended so many ideas together, moral citizenship, civic engagement, accessible information, local autonomy, separation of powers, into one American identity, cannot be emphasized enough. Before most other founding fathers were even born, Benjamin Franklin was building a nation that gave the individual the power to change in society and preserve liberty. Never before in history has a nation realized this concept more than the United States. It is our responsibility to pick up where Ben left off. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us for this week's edition of Profiles in Liberty here on the We Are Libertarians podcasting network. This was an episode that I have been um, very excited to bring to you for some time. Uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed writing this episode and researching this episode. I think the concept of Benjamin Franklin's attributes to not just the political system, but the American culture is something that we need to understand more, uh, especially if you're interested in spreading the message of liberty. Culture is where you need to start, not politics. Uh, next week, we are going to be going over Richard Henry Lee and the power of conviction. This is a guy that uh, I admittedly did not know uh, as much about as I really should have before making this episode, and uh, I am very excited for you to check him out because he is one of my favorite individuals that I have learned about in the process of creating this season. So please tune in next week for Richard Henry Lee's episode. Until then, please be sure to subscribe 
on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from to Profiles in Liberty. Give us a rating. Give us a review. Let us know how much you love the show. Check me out on Twitter at Caleb Franz. Check out We Are Libertarians on Twitter at We, the letter R, Libertarians. Finally, if you would, please check out the newsletter that we have, the Profiles in Liberty newsletter. I'd love to uh, send you more content every other week. And until next week, this is Caleb Franz with Profiles in Liberty.